Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Welcome back. We're in a sermon series called Unstoppable, and we've been going through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, showing how this early church that was born on Pentecost Sunday has truly been unstoppable. And today we're entering the 13th chapter, and our title for today's topic is called Paul's First Missionary Journey. Now, this 13th chapter, most scholars agree that it's a, it's a transitional chapter. Uh, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and we're about halfway through. By the way, have you ever heard of an organization called Acts 29, or the Acts 29 Network? It was started by a, a friend of ours, the, the late David Nicholas of Spanish River Church. And the whole idea of Acts 29 is the church continues. The church continues today. And they started this church planning network back in 1998. And since 1998, they've planted nearly 800 churches, not only here in the United States, but also around the world. We can see this is another example of how the church is truly unstoppable. Uh, as I mentioned, chapter 13 is considered a, a transitional chapter by most scholars. Not only is it approximately halfway through the, the book of Acts, but if we divide Acts in two, we would say the first 12 chapters are basically the, the main uh, character is, is Peter. And now starting in chapter 13 until the end, the, the main character is the Apostle Paul. Uh, the chapter begins, this chapter begins in Antioch, which is a city in modern-day Turkey. And again, if we would divide the book of Acts into two parts, uh, the first 12 chapters with the focus was, was Jerusalem, uh, along with the law and circumcision. And now the rest of the book of Acts is going to be centered in Antioch, uh, this city in modern-day Turkey. And the focus will be on the Gentiles. And, and God's grace. We'll see that as the Apostle Paul travels in his missionary journeys, that there he, when he enters a new city, he goes first to the, to the Jews. He goes to the, to the, to the uh, synagogue in the local town, and he, he preaches to the Jews. But he'll find his greatest success among the Gentiles. In these first 12 chapters, the mission of the church grew out from Jerusalem and then into Judea, Samaria, and all the way up here into Antioch and other parts of Asia and Europe. It's been almost 25 years since Pentecost. The church has prospered. There's been great numerical growth. The church has experienced persecution, but it's through persecution that the church has actually prospered and grown because the church was scattered, and that scattering actually helped it grow. Jesus told his disciples, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Jesus commanded his disciples, now that includes you and me, to go and, and make disciples of all nations. And we see here in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit has equipped the church 
to literally take the gospel everywhere, to all nations, to all language groups, and to all parts of the globe. By this time, the church has established a very effective outpost, a, a Gentile church established in Antioch. And we'll see that it's going to be from Antioch and not Jerusalem that the church will have its, its greatest growth. The, this church in Antioch will, will send out missionaries and we'll find that the pattern that they use then is actually the pattern that we use today in many of our churches, particularly the churches that continue to send missionaries out. Antioch was also a church that was disciplined and it had great leaders, godly leaders, that came from, from all walks of life. And the one thing they have in common was their desire to serve God and to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's take a look today, beginning in with the scriptures. Uh, we're beginning in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, beginning in verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there was certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menahan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And Dr. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, uh, is a historian, and he's doing the work of an historian. He, he's recording very carefully who the players are, where they are, and what they're charged to do. Barnabas is mentioned first and this in this growing group of prophets and teachers in Antioch. We saw, first, we saw Barnabas back at the beginning of the book of Acts, um, immediately after Pentecost, when the church was just beginning to grow. Barnabas was the one that, that sold a field and took the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is, Barnabas is actually a nickname. It means son of encouragement. And Barnabas was officially sent to by the apostles to Antioch to kind of head up what was going on in Antioch, and this is likely the reason he's being mentioned first. After, after Barnabas, there's Simeon, who's also called Niger. Now, now Niger is a, is, a, is a word that means black. So he was presumably, presumably a, a black African, and history records that this is the same Simeon of Cyrene, the one who carried Jesus' cross, and that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. We know this also through extra-biblical accounts. There was extra-biblical means they're outside of the Bible, but they're historical. In addition, we have a hint from some of the paintings dating all the way back to the fourth century that identify this Simeon of Cyrene as an African. And let's continue. Luke records other important prophets and teachers in Antioch, including Lucius of, of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Lucius of Cyrene went on to become the Bishop of Cyrene, a well-known leader in the early church, and referenced later in Paul's letter to the, to the Romans along with, with Timothy. So we have an idea that both Lucius as well as Timothy were in Rome at some time. Menaean is very interesting. It says he, he grew up likely was the childhood friend um, of Herod the Tetrarch. Now this Herod the Tetrarch is the same Herod that cut off the head of John the Baptist. Um, we don't know the extent of, of the friendship here between Menaean and, and Herod, but it's interesting to think how differently these two young men that grew up together turned out. Herod, this, this horrible king, and here we see Menaean 
who's one of the teachers in the church, one of the early leaders of the church in Antioch. And then the last person that's mentioned in this section is, is Saul. And I, and I love that. Now, this is probably the last time, probably, we're going to hear uh, Dr. Luke call Saul by this name, Saul. Uh, from now on, he's going to be known by his Greek name, which is Paul. Paul is actually shortened from the Greek word polyus. Paulius was a common name um, in Greece at the time, and Paulius actually means small, little, or, or humble. And this is an attitude I think that Paul is trying to embrace as well. So let's continue with our scripture today in Acts 13, verse 2. It says, And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and set them away. So it says that they ministered to the Lord. Now, how do you think you do that? How do you minister? How does one minister to the Lord? Well, in, in Matthew 25, a, a very, very familiar verse, Jesus basically says this, and I'll, and I'll paraphrase it. Jesus says, go and, and give a drink to someone that is thirsty. Give someone food that is hungry. If they're naked, why don't you clothe them? If they're in prison, go and visit them. If they're sick, go and, and bring cheer to them. If they're a stranger, invite them in. And then the people said, when, Lord, did we ever see you um, thirsty or naked or hungry or a stranger and, and minister to you? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, when you've ministered to the least of these, you've ministered to me. So when it says that they are ministering to the Lord, this is exactly what the church is doing. They're a, they're a New Testament church that's ministering first to the people in the church, but also to the community as well. So these leaders in the church are, are ministering to the Lord, and they're also fasting. Now, it, it's actually unfortunate that so many or so much of the church has lost the discipline of fasting. Some people think that that fasting was, was an Old Testament thing. It was something that people in the Old Testament did. But, but Jesus spoke often about fasting. Uh, the apostles fasted. Paul talks about fasting as well. Now, fasting, by, when Jesus was talking about it, he said, remember there was a, there were, the apostles had gone and they were trying to cast a demon out and they weren't able to. And Jesus came and was able to do it, and he said, some of this, some of these only come out by fasting and prayer. So fasting and prayer go together very, very clearly in the eyes of, eyes of Jesus. Now, biblically, fasting is, is always about food, uh, to abstain from the nourishment of some, of some kind for a specific amount of time. Uh, it could be short, it could be long, but the idea is to abstain from the temporal needs that we have, like food, in order to focus on the spiritual, the eternal. Now, it can be very short. In fact, every morning when you have breakfast, breakfast is actually a break of the fast from the night before. When we fast and we pray, just like this church in Antioch, we'll discern the will of God. God will lead us. He'll direct us. We are his sheep, and Jesus said the sheep will, his sheep will hear his voice. Notice that it says in, in verse 2 that the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. Well, how does the Holy Spirit say something? You know, we often make the mistake 
that somehow this this early church, this church in Antioch, and what we read about in the in the Acts of the Apostles, that these people were more spiritual than we were, or there was a time when the Holy Spirit would speak to the people in the church, but that doesn't happen anymore, and that's that's a horrible mistake. We need to think of the Holy Spirit almost as our our God conscious, God conscious. You've heard about fouling your conscience or, or hearing your conscience speak. And, and I think many ways that's how the Holy Spirit speaks to us today. Jesus said that, uh, that he would send the Holy Spirit. And he says this in John 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Greek word for counselor is paraclete. It means someone that comes alongside you and expresses the idea that our emotions, our thoughts, our ideals and desires can have their origins in the Holy Spirit. So when we read the Holy Spirit spoke, or the Holy Spirit said something, or God instructed us, sometimes we can think that that was prophetic, that one of these prophets basically heard the the Word of God and, and communicated to the people. But more likely, uh, more often than not, it's exactly this. It's that inner voice, it's that God consciousness within you that speaks to you after you've prayed and fasted and gives you the instructions and tells you exactly what God would have you do. So let's, let's continue. It says, verse 3, it says, Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and, and sent them away. Now this laying on of hands is also something that we see here for the first time in the book of Acts, but it's, but it's basically something that we do often in our churches. Informal commissioning of the work of the church. We see it with, with pastors and elders and deacons and, and missionaries and many others that are formally commissioned or invested to do the work of the Lord in your local church you'll see exactly this. The leaders of the church, the elders and the pastors, gather together and they, they lay hands on the head of the person that is being invested, that is, that is, that is being commissioned to do the work of the church. This, this word invested, by the way, is exactly the same word in Greek as we get the word ordained. When we lay hands on an individual and ordain them, when we ordain our elder or our pastor or bishop, we're investing in that individual with the authority to do the job that God has called them to do. The, the Lord is, is calling His church today, and that's how the church continues to grow. It's, God calls the church and invests in people, and He calls individuals. You know, it, it, it makes me remember a, a, an a event that happened in, my, in my, our life, my wife and I, about almost about 35 years ago. We were still pretty young, just getting started, and and growing in the Lord, and we went to a, to a conference. It was actually a Holy Spirit conference. And in the conference, the, the, the speaker was basically saying that, that God was calling people uh, to ministry. And that God, it didn't mean whether you had your paycheck there, but He was calling people to minister. And He was calling people that were willing to go to the front lines. And He wanted people to, to stand up and, 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 and acknowledge that they're being called. And my wife and I stood, and, and lit, I talked to my wife later, and we really expected that we would not be alone, that, that most of the auditorium, uh, the people would stand up. This was a general call 
to be involved in ministry. Well, wouldn't you know it, after we stood, we realized that we were pretty much alone. All of a sudden, the spotlight was on us. It wasn't just us. There were a number of people within the auditorium that had stood, but it wasn't anything like I thought. I just thought I was hearing this call, and we, we stood. But what was interesting was the pastor said that, yes, we are all called, and he was kind of admonishing the rest of the people that everybody should have called, but he was saying this. He said, you know, if, if, if you're on the front lines of ministry, that's where the battles take place because the enemy is also sending his best troops onto the front lines. And to expect persecution, to expect uh, some difficulties if you're really going to be engaged in ministry. And, and, I, and I've taken that to heart and I've remembered that a number of times, especially in these last 20 years doing full-time ministry, uh, understanding that from time to time we will face persecution. The scripture says that they sent them away. They laid hands on Barnabas and Saul and then they, they sent them. The, the church at Antioch sent Barnabas and, and Saul out. Now these men were, were supported by the church. And they, and they sent them out. That means that they, they prayed for them, they, they provided financial support for them, as, as well as oversight. This is the first instance of what happens actually in, in many of our churches today. Any church that has missionaries that they, they send out. We send out people as pastors. We send out Peter, people to be in the medical field. We send out people sometimes to be, to be teachers, uh, but we're, we're sending them, we're sending them. Uh, the word missionary, by the way, comes from this, this word missio, which is to send. And in fact, the whole idea of a missionary is, is the sent one. It's a person that has been sent. Then, it, then the scripture continues, it says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to, to Cyprus. So, they went down to Seleucia. Let's, let's, let's dig into that a little bit. We don't know much about Seleucia, except that it's a, a port city um, on the Mediterranean Sea near Antioch, somewhere near Antioch. It was an important port city at the time and likely grew in importance um, after Alexander the Great died and three of his generals kind of took over the empire and actually expanded it. And one of his generals was Seleucus, who, who basically controlled that, that part of Asia Minor, all of Judea, all the way into Asia. That was Seleucus, and this city is named after the general. Let's continue, verse five. And when they arrived in Salmis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. This practice of, of preaching in the synagogues is, a, is an open door opportunity. For at the time, many of the synagogues, after they would have their service, after they would have their readings and have a hymn, they would basically ask the question, are, are any learned men, um, do any learned men have, have something to share? And it gave Paul the opportunity to be able to stand up and, and talk about Jesus. And he did that as long as he was, was welcomed. Uh, when he wasn't welcomed, he'd shake the dust off his feet and, and go talk to the Gentiles. The verse said also that they had John as their assistant. Now John is referencing John Mark. John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas and we find out here that he was the third member of this team. It was Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark. And John Mark is still a, a very young man at the time. John Mark, however, uh, even though he was the youngest and he wasn't even mentioned of the people that were sent, 
he's likely the only one in this group, possibly the only one in Antioch, that actually saw Jesus prior to the crucifixion. John Mark would ultimately go and, and write the other Gospels that, that bear his name, the Gospel of Mark. And he, he did that somewhere between 59 and 59, uh, 55 and 59 AD. Now, many scholars see a, a hidden reference to John Mark in his own Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 14, maybe you remember this, 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 is, this is right around the time of Jesus' arrest and the crucifixion. It says, verse 51, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Isn't that interesting? Now this incident is only recorded in Mark's Gospel. Uh, that along with the fact that the young man is, uh, is anonymous has led many to believe that this, this young runner named, uh, un this young um, unnamed runner uh, is actually the first streaker. I mean, the, the, none other than, than John Mark. So let's continue. We'll get serious. Uh, verse 6 and 7. Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, Paphos is a city on the west coast of Cyprus, and it was known for its worship of Aphrodite. Now, Aphrodite was the goddess of fertility. Um, while no remembrance of this temple exists, as it was destroyed in an earthquake in the fourth century, it's, it's very well known that this, this, this temple and temple worship included prostitution. It included sex with the temple prostitutes. Uh, so immorality is going to be a big challenge of, of Paul's journeys. He's, we're going to see this often in the book of Acts, that, that Paul has to struggle with the pagan culture because so much of the pagan culture has to do with, with this immorality. Um, however, here in Paphos, we're also going to see a direct challenge by none other than Satan himself. The scriptures say that this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, Dr. Luke records him as the proconsul, and that means he was the appointed governor in the area. This is, this is the, the number one guy. He's appointed by, proconsuls are appointed by the Roman Senate. As proconsul, he had the same rank and the same authority as Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was called a propriator appropriator. An appropriator was, was appointed by the emperor, where a proconsul was appointed by the senate, typically elected. Now this is, a, this is a very important man. The scripture here says that he was intelligent, and that kind of is this, this broad brush saying this is, this is a key guy in the area. And, and this, that he was intelligent, is going to figure in as we're going to have a battle be between uh, Paul and the sorcerer. But, but Sergius Paulus was a very important man. His image, for example, would be on the coins from that time. Notice this, this false prophet is a, is a Jew. It's important because we'll discover that this false prophet actually has a, a couple of names, and that'll tell us something about what's going on in Paphos. Let's read on. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, 
who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw that had, what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's take a look a little closer here at what's happening on this first missionary trip. The Apostle Paul, along with Barnabas and John Mark, encounter opposition. And this opposition is from, is from Satan. It's apparent that Sergius Paulus called for Paul. As Luke records, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He wants to understand about Jesus. Jesus was a well-known figure at the time. There was all kinds of rumors about Jesus, all kinds of stories about Jesus, and people were genuinely interested in hearing about this Jesus of Nazareth. However, this false prophet, um, Elamus, who, has, who was taking the name Bar-Jesus, meaning son of Jesus, is opposing Paul. He's opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke records that Bar-Jesus was a, a Jew. He no doubt promoted himself possibly as a, maybe a relative of Jesus or someone who was capable of doing wonders and signs and, and miracles and exorcism because he was somehow connected uh, not only to this Jewish God but also to, to Jesus. However, he also had the name Alamus, which means sorcerer. In fact, it's the same word that's also translated in some places as, as magi, magicians, a sorcerer. This is a significant threat to the gospel. It's, it's, a, it's a very significant threat. threat. And, and Paul meets it head on. You see, it's, it's one thing to disbelieve, but it's a completely other matter to have deception. Deception is much greater than, than disbelief. The Sergius Paulus wanted to hear the gospel. He was intelligent and receptive. However, this, this sorcerer, this Bar-Jesus, has attached himself to the man. He's, he's attached to himself like he's like right there at his hip. No matter where he goes, this Bar-Jesus is with him. Paul recognized exactly what's going on. He's aware of the spiritual battle. And like I said, he, he meets it head on. And he says, O full of deceit and all fraud. See, that's what it is. Deceit is nothing but something that's, that's fraud. It's, it's, it's a lie. You know, something that is true but has a little bit of lie in it is still completely false. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Paul was, calling, was called to, to preach Jesus. He was on a mission. And this false prophet, this bar Jesus, was on a mission as well. Paul was of God. And Bar-Jesus was the son of the devil. You know, one of my heroes of the faith is, is Billy Graham. Very few since Paul have had the kind of impact that Billy Graham had on impacting the kingdom, on the growth of the kingdom of God. Here's what Billy Graham had to say about deception and falsehood that's in opposition particularly to the gospel. Billy Graham says, never underestimate Satan's power and never underestimate his ability to deceive and make us think he isn't to be feared. In fact, he even deceives some people into thinking he doesn't exist. Now, he's not as powerful as God, but he is still a powerful spiritual force who works against God in 
every way that he possibly can. This is why the Bible commands us to put on the full armor of God. That's out of Ephesians 6.13, so that we can withstand the wiles of the devil. So, so Paul calls it like it is. He calls a spade a spade. He's done with the false prophet. He's had enough. So Paul speaks out against this deception and he binds the devil. He says, and now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And the scripture records, and immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. You know, when I read this, I can't help but think that Paul is recalling his own encounter on the road to Damascus. Paul was struck blind and had someone, and someone had to lead him by the hand while he was blind. Now, the purpose of this was to stop the deception so that Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, could hear the gospel. And it worked. It actually had an immediate impact on this Roman governor. Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, while it's certainly astonishing that this bar Jesus fellow would be struck blind, it's even more astonishing when you think about what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus, the Son of God, became a man. He lived a perfect life. He, he died on a Roman cross for the sin of all mankind, your sin and my sin. He rose on the third day. And the Bible says that by having belief in this Jesus, the Son of Man, our sins will be forgiven and we have eternal life. Now that's, that's astonishing. Much more astonishing than a man that goes blind for a while. All of us that are named by the name of Jesus, all of us that believe and understand how, how critical it is that the gospel goes forth, need to understand that we are on a, a mission, a, a spiritual mission. All of us are. As we're on a spiritual mission, we're going to run into deception. We're going to run into people just like Paul did. Now, it might not be as dramatic, but we will face persecution and we will face resistance. Don't ever think that you won't run into opposition. It's still the same gospel that Paul preached. And the greatest deception today is what Billy Graham said, thinking that somehow the devil doesn't even exist, that there's no opposition, but nothing could be further from the truth. We do run into opposition. However, the gospel will go forth. That's why we call this whole sermon series Unstoppable, because the church is truly unstoppable. The scripture says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's our promise. That's our victory in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.